1: Uh, she's a markets reporter for uh, Bloomberg, and she's here doing some work on an Amazon uh, case, Federal Trade Commission. It's tough to be a big tech and trying to get bigger, isn't it?
3: It is. Look, this is my kind of weekly obsession this week. I'm traditionally a okay. markets reporter, as you know. Uh, but to me, I think w- one of the big stories that perhaps isn't getting enough attention is just how much momentum the FTC is getting. Some of the biggest cases against these big tech names are coming from the FTC, and a lot of them filed just this week on Amazon. The third one on Amazon. The big one I've been keeping my eye on, though, is Microsoft and Activision. Yes. And, and bear with me. Fun fact, my very first beat at Bloomberg was video game stocks and cannabis stocks. Really? So the, I know. I didn't know that. I know
1: games okay i
3: know it really tracks with my image doesn't it It it's a cool beat it actually was and this was back in 2018 when you you know these weren't big covered sectors right just yet so activision kind of holds a a a close spot in my heart but i think what you really have to keep in mind here is that this is one of the biggest tech deals in history 69 billion billion dollar active acquisition of activision Getting a lot of flack for basically uh, potentially hurting consumers. That's kind of the new definition of antitrust now. Just how competitive does it get? Um, If I can put some numbers on it. Because you did start to hear testimony from Satya Nadella, the Microsoft CEO, um, the Activision CEO, Bobby Kotick, as well. And one of the big takeaways, simply, was how much market share does microsoft take in the cloud gaming space which is very nascent by the way Mm -hmm. uh, if you take over call of duty vertical integration essentially and one of the chief kind of complaints came from the sony playstation ceo they're saying look if you take call of duty off our consoles that's going to one erode our own kind of market dominance in Mm -hmm. in the console market but two it's really going to hurt consumers because at the end of the day you don't just pay 50 to 100 bucks for the game you have to then pay Two hundred and fifty to three hundred bucks for the console as well, and right. you know you could have gamers up and up in arms about that. Yeah, yeah. So
4: when does Microsoft say this has just gotten too hard and too expensive? Let's just call it a day on this deal.
3: Yeah, well, that's where I think this decision is so crucial. Look, we've had yeah. about five days of testimony from both sides. We've heard closing arguments yesterday. We are expecting now to hear uh, from the FTC commissioner soon, um, as well as well as the judge who is ruling the case. Basically, the deal here is is the FTC has filed an injunction, which basically means they need to, if the FTC grants it, or excuse me, if the federal court grants it, they need to then be able to take this to a proper trial, a proper hearing. That's not what's happened yet. If it is taken to that proper trial hearing, that is three years of extra administrative costs, plus a $3 billion breakup fee. Now in the context of microsoft three billion dollars is not that much but the added kind of gains you've seen in microsoft stock off of the potential Mm. of this deal is enormous and that's where you see a, a bigger loss basically the chief lawyer for the microsoft side said If this injunction is granted, we're going to drop the deal because the closing date is July 18th, and there's no way you can get a hearing done before that. So So when do we
1: hear about that injunction?
3: We're expecting starting as early as Monday, but given the holiday, it might be later in the week.
1: And so is there a chance that this thing could actually go to trial before, you know, the kind of that closing date type of thing? There is. And we'll get a resolution one way or the other?
3: Uh, There is. It might not go to trial because basically Microsoft is saying is if – there is a push to go to trial. They're going to drop the deal altogether. Mm -hmm. And if they don't grant the injunction, traditionally, the FTC says, if you don't get the injunction, we're going to hands off on the deal. That's been the historic trend. But Lena Khan is a different animal. She comes Mm -hmm. at tech really hard. She has been for a while. So anything can happen here, really.
4: And how does this impact the AI sector as well, Creedy? What's the potential read-through?
3: Yeah, well, when we talked about cloud gaming, look, cloud gaming is something that is brand spanking new in the technology sphere. And it's why Microsoft really wants to get their hands on it as well. Here's what else is brand spanking new, artificial intelligence. And a lot of that is happening through these acquisitions of these smaller AI players because it hasn't grown to that ability yet. And remember, acquisitions have been kind of frozen for a lot of these big tech names for a while. It's why they're sitting on... I think $150 billion of cash combined with all the kind of big tech players because they're trying to avoid that scrutiny from the federal government. So the concern here for the broader tech sphere and the broader benchmark is that if you start to see some sort of precedent that the FTC wins here, then it could hit every deal that big tech has had and might potentially have in their race to yep. really expand on AI.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is the the big fallout. Yeah. Uh, And I think we're kind of, the market's kind of already pricing that in. I I don't think the market anticipates. The, market, the the government regulators allowing big tech to do anything more of size right,
3: right. nothing more but then they also don't think that they're going to make progress on curtailing what's already been done and that's yep. really where the market risk is all right
1: kriti uh great reporting thank you so much uh, for coming in here kriti gupta she's host of bloomberg surveillance early edition for bloomberg news and just doing some some work here on what is a huge topic in silicon valley in technology in MA in general which is can big tech get anything done in terms of uh uh, mergers and acquisitions. And boy, the government's uh, really clamping down hard on that after you know, decades of a
2: soft touch. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com.
5: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
6: You're listening to The Ken's our Live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: First half of the year in the books, and, uh, you know, when this day closes here, so we're looking at it, uh, a nice uh, big move up in this market, 15% plus in the S&P 500. Matt Stuckey joins us. He's a senior portfolio manager at Northwestern Mutual. Matt, what do you make of this market here? What do you make of the first half here with, uh, like, no hindsight?
7: Look, no hindsight. This is a surprising (laughs) result for the front half of this year. And so put me in that camp of those that probably were caught a little bit off guard with how strong this market has been. Um, Look, I mean, the NASDAQ. Up until today, is up forty percent year-to-date. That's the best since 1983, when "What a Feeling" was leading the radio charts. And so, this is definitely unprecedented, just in terms of what this market's done in absolute terms, but also just in terms of the context of
8: you know we, we're in the
7: middle of a, a Fed rate hike cycle that they're moving pretty aggressively with. With there's you know a, a good amount of fear out there in terms of the recession. Uh, probability. And we think that is still something that's on the table. And so all that together, it it definitely is a surprising result.
4: So to what extent, Matt, are you concerned about lack of breadth in the rally in the first half of 2023? Paul was uh, citing earlier some research from Bloomberg Intelligence showing that that breadth may not actually be as big of a problem as we tend to talk about all day uh, here at Bloomberg. Is that something that's on top of mind for you?
7: It is, um, you know, just a. Couple, I was actually looking at this topic this morning, and um, you know, if if last October was indeed the low um, for this this cycle, and you know, recession risks were properly priced at that point, you would expect a pretty sizable rally off that low level, and broad-based participation off that level. But if you take a look at kind of what's happened since October, the equal-weighted S&P 500 for 190 days out since the low is up about 14% or so. Um, the overall market, which is cap-weighted, obviously is up about 24%. But if you contrast that rally off the lows of 14% against prior reche- recession trough levels, we're we're kind of in weak territory. On average, if you kind of go back through each recession, kind of what was the low and what was the rally from the low after 190 days, that average rally is about, you know, 45 to 50 percent or so. So we're quite a bit underneath that. So broad-based participation is is not quite there. Uh, and on an equal-weighted basis, it's it's a, telling you a different story. Uh, just how narrow this leadership has been, which to me uh, makes me question some of the sustainability.
1: All right. So Matt, let's just assume. I was overweight the magnificent seven stocks here this year. Mm-hmm. Now I'm sitting on this big game. I'm looking to reallocate uh-huh. here. Um, in equities, how are you kind of allocating between the various kind of ways to play this market, large cap, small cap growth value? How do you, how are you guys kind of thinking about that?
7: Well, we're, we're shifting a little bit towards value, a little bit, a little bit towards small and mid cap, which is a little bit, um, I, you know, I would say it's it's not necessarily dressed for the economic environment yet because we do think a recession is in the cards for later on this year and into 2024. Those asset classes are a little bit more economically sensitive, you know, to the macro. But the the reality that we think is priced into those asset classes to us gives us some compensation for the risks in front of us. You know, uh, look at small cap as an example. Let's just kind of dig into that for a little bit. Um, Earnings estimates for the four to 12 months are down about 14%. And we're paying just a 13 X multiple for those reduced estimates. Contrast that to the S and P 500, which have actually seen earnings revisions start to rise. And they're only 3% off the all time highs. And you're paying 19 times earnings for that. Um, You know, valuations aren't a a, a very good short term um, indicator for performance. But over the long term, where we try to align our time horizon with um, our investment portfolio, they do start to matter. Uh, and so we, th- we think um, we can probably weather the storm pretty well in something that already is pricing in um, a little bit of economic weakness, which is what we expect as we kind of move throughout the rest of this year. But you know, broad, outside of equities, we do think fixed income is attractive here. Uh, and mm-hmm. we've allocated more of our portfolio towards fixed income for those that have more balanced portfolios. Um, part of that is just due to um, an overall outlook of, again, recession but also inflationary pressures are coming, coming down and real interest rates are rising. Uh, these are some of the highest real interest rates we've seen in over a decade. Uh, and so for investors that are out there that have balanced portfolios, we do think fixed income is attractive.
4: I want to talk to you about uh, this breaking news that we've got on student loan forgiveness uh, from the Supreme Court, throwing out Biden's proposal on student loan forgiveness there. Biden saying that he's going to come back with a different plan, but let's say that those student loan payments are not forgiven. And uh, of course, the student loan payments are resuming after a three-year pause. J.P. Morgan says that's going to cause a hit, particularly to core retail sales growth. Are you concerned about the return of student loan payments impacting Earnings this season.
7: Uh, we we are a little bit concerned about that. Um, I think if let's just you know, use a hypothetical situation here that you know uh, payments are turned back on, uh, and what's what's the cost of that to the economy? It's about you know 125 billion or so worth of consumer payments that are going to be reallocated towards meeting their student loan obligations, and of that subset of, of those that are going to be required to start repaying. Um, Think about the propensities uh, to spend of that population. You know, typically, these are these are younger people. These are people with lower incomes uh, uh, relative to the rest of the population. And the propensity to spend is very high. Um, so the direct impact to the economy, uh, we would think is probably punches above the weight a little bit versus that number. Um, and so you know, the direct impact, yeah, it's probably consumer-related businesses. Um, retail sales definitely collecting um, a lot of the impact.
1: Hey, on your fixed income comment, Matt, talk to us about duration. Can I go out from the curve? I mean, i'm awful. I'm very comfortable sitting here in my two- year treasury at four point eight seven percent. Some people are saying, I got to get out of my comfort zone a little bit and go out in duration. I don't know about that. What do you think?
7: It's tricky right now. Um, you know, right now, actually, one year treasury bills or treasury bonds are at five point four one percent. That's twenty bases higher than we were prior to the regional bank crisis that flared up during March. And you kind of think, OK, back then, the market was expecting you know, a rate cut um, in the next 30 days when we started to see SIPPI fail. Now there's no cuts priced in for the next six months. And there's you know, increased probability we're going to get a, you know, two more hikes from the Federal Reserve. Um, and so you kind of think, OK, interest rates are pressured upward from here and maybe even the two years pressured upward from here. Um, but we kind of go through history and hiking cycles and, and cutting cycles. The Fed, you know, when they're forced to cut, doesn't just cut by 25 basis points. Typically, that first cut is 150 to 200 basis oh, points if they have that in the bag. That's usually due to some sort of economic event going on, you know, some sort of form of recession or there's a crisis somewhere. Um, I'm just going through history and, and we're not calling for a kind of episodic situation that would force that. But, you know, we do need to probably think through the, the likelihood that what we're seeing that's attractive on the front yep. end here, how long that's likely to persist. Um, and so we're more intermediate, uh, and that's what we're rec- recommending to our clients, where we get that nice balance between duration and reinvestment um, right. for our clients. Um, And, you know, it is tempting, though, to take those attractive front-end yields, though. I understand that.
1: Exactly. All right, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate getting your thoughts. Matt Stuckey, Senior Portfolio Manager for Northwestern Mutual.
6: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: Madison Mills, Paul Sweeney here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Busy, busy day here. We need to take uh, some time out here and get the latest on the geopolitical issues, particularly as it relates to Ukraine. Uh, And nobody better to speak to about this issue than Mike Rogers. Mike is a retired four-star admiral with the United States Navy. And, of course, we thank him for his service. Admiral, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to chat with us today. I would love to get your view of the current situation
8: on the battlefield in Ukraine. Sure. And thanks very much for the opportunity, Paul. Um, You know, as I look at it, I don't think either side, even in the aftermath of the Wagner Group activities of the rebellion, neither side has yet shown the ability to deliver a knockout, bow, even in the midst of this disarray within the Russian side, so to speak, as this mutiny was ongoing. Ukraine was then unable to really take advantage of it. They're still in the early stages, I think, of their offensive. We'll see how that plays out. But right now, my assessment would be we're likely to see a kind of continued stalemate mm. for the, the near future, at least. What, what is
1: your takeaway from this just st- stunning news of what happened within Russia over the last week with the Wagner Group? And most specifically, what do you think that means for Putin standing within Russia?
8: So first of all, I think it highlights there's probably more fragility in the Russian system than most of the West has recognized. If I was Putin, I'd be very concerned and I'd be concerned about a couple specific dimensions. Number one, you saw absolutely almost no reaction from the Russian military or the Russian security services to this meeting. They literally seem to sit on the sidelines and watch. And the Wagner group was able to relatively quickly move several hundred miles, occupy Rostov and a few other um, locations within Southwest Russia and then move on to Moscow before ultimately, I think Putin cut a deal to get this thing to stop. But the fact that they didn't respond, that would worry me if I were. Secondly, if you look at the videos of the Wagner group as it moved into Rostov, the largest urban area that we saw them in, or You saw people on the streets literally cheering. Yep. Now, not because they thought Prigozhin, the the leader of the Wagner group, was trying to overthrow Putin, because he wasn't. But the idea that this strong individual, who's been leading a group that's been relatively successful by Russian standards on the battlefield of Ukraine, this individual was saying, "Look, the reason we're not winning this war is because of incompetence within the defense ministry." And the Russian senior military leadership, and therefore I, Progozin, are going to put enough pressure on Putin that he's going to remove those people and will ultimately win this war. Because Progozin had been an advocate, or he had been arguing that it was an appropriate action. The fact that so many people were cheering this, if I was Putin, I would be thinking to myself, this is something I need to be thinking about in terms of what does that mean? Why is the public yeah. responding so positively? this so
4: to speak well what about the global response i'm curious what you're thinking about sort of to what extent uh this reaction to putin on the ground is going to impact the ability for other world leaders to continue to rebuff him and rebuff russia when it comes to things like sanctions uh, and other measures that other global leaders have
8: so i think It doesn't change the broad dynamic where the West, the US, EU, NATO, uh, and a handful of other nations remain committed to helping Ukraine, both through the provision of weapons, through assistance, and through these sanctions that are being imposed on Russia. I think all of those nations remain committed, and this activity of the last week doesn't change that. Um, Likewise, I don't think China, the biggest champion, so to speak, of the Russians, is likely to change their position at least now. I think most of the major outside parties are trying to get a sense for was this event unique? Was it a one-off? Does it suggest that there's something more foundational or problematic that there's greater weakness in the Russian system that we fully realize? So I think right now you're watching people observe this and trying to see does this activity that we watch with the Wagner group, does it start to spur others in Russia to suddenly mm-hmm. start talking about hey, we need to stand up, we need to stop this war, we'll see. I don't think we're going to see anything immediately, but everybody's clearly paying great attention. Admiral, is there any,
1: I guess, weaponry uh, armaments or even sanctions that could be provided by the West that could tip the scales materially in the favor of Ukraine? I'm thinking F-16 fighter jets. Is there anything out there that could be
8: provided that would make a big difference? i think though i don't want to speak for ukraine but my sense is if you ask them what's the what is the greatest capability that we wish we had that we don't have right now i suspect their argument would be give us long-range weapons Mm -hmm. that would enable us to strike targets deeper within russia that would increase the pressure on russia both domestically its populace would see the war start to feel the war putin would be more pressured and it would also enable us to try to stop the flow of reinforcements, munitions, support into these Russian troops in Ukraine. We could hit the targets deeper behind them. It would enable us to isolate them much more effectively. My guess would be that would probably be the number one thing they would be looking for. And at the moment the U.S., the West has broadly said, that would be really escalatory. We're not committed. We're not prepared to do that. But if you watch how this has unfolded over the last, since February of last year, we're coming up now in 15, 16 months. We're now providing weapons, the West is in the US, that uh, when this started, we initially said, ooh, this would be escalatory, we're not gonna do that. Like, as you've highlighted, you know, F-16s or fighter aircraft. Um, So the war is definitely in a different place than it was when it started, not unexpectedly.
4: As we kind of near this war lasting for a year and a half, which I feel like so many of us never anticipated, If you had to put a timeline on it, when would you say that this war is likely to wrap up? And how much acceleration do you think we'll see in that, given the events that we saw in Russia over the weekend?
8: So, first of all, I wish I could tell you I knew an exact date, but clearly I don't. My gut tells me it will be longer than shorter. So, for example, I would not expect anything before the end of the year at the earliest personally. Now, what are the things that might change that dynamic? We'll see how this Ukrainian offensive unfolds, if it in fact leads to great success on the battlefield and they are able to push the Russians either out of or or back closer to out of, out of Ukraine or closer back into Russia itself. We'll see if that plays out. We'll see if Putin makes an assessment, given what we've just watched with the Wagner group. Hey, perhaps the conditions for me domestically within my own system in Russia are not quite as Strong as I thought they were. Maybe it's in my best interest to try to declare victory, so to speak. Um, but traditionally, conflicts end for one of three reasons historically. Either what happens on the battles, one side gains great advantage, or another side is really weak and feels like we just got to stop this. The second scenario, generally historically, is political pressure. Uh, Again, one side either feels I can't take this pressure, we're losing, my populace is against the war, we've got to stop it, the price is too high. And then the third is some external party generally intervenes. historically, it might have been the United Nations, it could be China, the US or others who basically put pressure on the primary combatants to end the conflict. At the moment, none of those three scenarios, battlefield dominance or failure political pressure or the or the major external parties supporting the primary combatants, none of those three things right now look like there is any indication that they are going to bring a, a, an end to the battlefield conflict anytime soon. Sadly.
1: Ambassador, is there any reason to believe that Putin still does not enjoy the f- support of a senior military leadership?
8: I would not draw the conclusion from this activity that Putin is imminent danger of being replaced, removed, whether that be a coup for the military, the security services, the oligarchs, etc. However, what we have seen should clearly show both ourselves as well as Putin. Perhaps you're not as strong as you think you are. And given that, maybe you ought to step back and rethink the, the value of continuing this conflict, which you started in the first place in a directed violation of sovereignty and international law and it's time to end this. We'll see what how, if this changes Putin's calculus in a lot to watch in the coming weeks
1: and months. All right, uh Admiral, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Mike Rogers, retired four-star admiral for the US Navy and a proud graduate of Auburn University. So we appreciate getting some of his time there.
5: Stifel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.
6: Kent, our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Madison Mills.
1: Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. We've been breaking down a lot of the rulings we received from the Central, uh, from the Supreme Court over the last several days. We've got a lot of smart people in there helping us understand what's going on. Uh, today, the Supreme Court throws out President Biden's student loan relief. Uh, 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 bill. And we want to break that down a little bit more. We've been talking about it all morning. We're joined right now by Bloomberg Legal Analyst June Grasso and Bloomberg Higher Ed Finance Report at Janet Lorne. They join us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, And uh, on Zoom from Washington, D.C., Ryan Teague Beckwith uh, joins us. He covers the White House and politics. June, let's start with you. You've had a few minutes now (laughs) to take a look at this ruling here. How profound is this ruling by the supreme court how wide-ranging maybe
9: so we're talking about the student loan yes we are. There are so There's, many things that I happened know. today well said. Yeah, and notice crazy. all by six to three votes yes with uh, the conservative yeah. yep. majority flexing their I power see how that works yep it's 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 very profound and the i think the supreme court really the conservatives went out of their way to find standing sort of bent the rules a little bit to find standing in this case because they said the states didn't have standing but they used a Missouri loan servicer by by law has to give some money back, kick some money back to the state and okay. they said that because of this you know Joe Biden forgiving student loans that loan servicers would lose money and so Missouri would lose money so it was really a tenuated argument mm-hmm. but i mean this is going to have profound effects on all the student loan uh, borrowers. And I know that President Biden is supposed to announce new action, but I'm trying to figure out what action he could, he could actually you know, put forth that would surpass uh, Supreme right, Court. Well,
1: let's go to you, Ryan. Um, you're down in D.C. You're, you're talking to the folks down there uh, in the White House, in the administration. What do you think the president can do
10: yeah, I mean, he's always had the power to do smaller and more targeted things. And I think if you read the decision here, um, the majority opinion says that its its main beef with this is the unprecedented scale. So he can continue to do these uh, sort of uh, smaller targeted efforts at specific groups of people who have student loans. I, I don't know. Advocates want him to just, you know, redo the same thing, but with a different rationale, not relying on the pandemic as his excuse. And I, I don't think he's going to do that. Uh, but I do think um, he'll offer up a bunch of, of other ideas. And then I think we'll see this become a, a push for Congress to get involved after the 2024 elections.
4: Yeah, well, Ryan, to your point, this has been done previously by uh, politicians across the aisle for a variety of different uh, individuals and communities. Uh, the DOE forgave $6 billion for defrauded students. Trump wiped out debt for disabled veterans. So going to you on this, Janet, are there some smaller moves that the Biden administration could make uh, to get around some of these the Supreme Court uh, challenges here when it comes to speech? specific groups of students that could get their debt forgiven. Yes, you mentioned the forgiveness for for-profit
11: schools, yeah. the Corinthian, that was a that was a I believe it was $6 billion. Mm-hmm. They've made the public service loan for big forgiveness program much easier. That was a, a, a very difficult way to get um, your loans repaid after 10 years for working in the public sector. Um, they've already been trying to make things easier. Um, so there, there are ways, but it's not going to be the blanket 10000 for everybody. And Elizabeth Warren has already come out to say um, the fight is not over, um, that the president has more tools and he must use them because the advocates have been pretty, you know, strong in their in their language that they want something. Um, however, um, you know, probably the bigger impact is that the. the twenty thousand dollars on Pell Grant recipients. That yeah. would have that would have had a bigger impact on their lives. Certainly Elizabeth Warren had been pushing for fifty thousand, which was not politically tenable. But the question is, as we talked about earlier, this does not solve the root problem of the increasing cost of college. This is a one time fix for $10,000 for most borrowers, um, doesn't address the cost of graduate school, which is, you know, mm-hmm. the, the people with the largest balances are people who went to law school <laughs> or other, other um, graduate schools and borrowed over $100,000. And that doesn't do anything to change that calculus. And frankly, colleges were never on the hook for this money.
1: Yep, exactly. Uh, last of the Sweeney offspring, the fourth, is gonna start his freshman year. Oh, and yeah. his, the all-in number starts with an eight. It is uneven. it yeah relative to my my oldest that's been inflation. Yeah, it's crazy. June, let's step back from the court. You mentioned the six three aspect of it. As we step back from and just look at it in totality, what's your take on this on this court here?
9: Well I think that this week really says it all, because during the term, there was an opinion here or opinion there where you think, oh, well, they're coming That's together. what I was thinking. And in the last week, which is when they usually hand down the most controversial issues, you had six to three decisions which struck down affirmative action, which got rid of President Joe Biden's loan forgiveness, and which restricted rights of LGBTQ people, so I think that you're seeing the conservative majority really flexing their muscle. They're not afraid, even though we're, we're at a point where there's so much questioning about the court, and we've yeah. seen these ethics issues where we the public sees there's no accountability from these nine people. They can do whatever they want, do and we look s- what they're doing.
1: Did we, or do we see it on the mirror image when the, re- the Democrats have... And I can't recall when that was or whatever, but uh, I mean, I'm not a scholar. What if the Republicans had, or if the Democrats, or when the Re- Democrats had a six to three or five to four, didn't they do kind of the same thing?
9: I don't remember things like this. That I mean, there were some things. They, you know, there there was affirmative action. There was Roe v. Things, Wade, right? But there's things. They're, they're taking away rights here. That's the difference. Yeah. The conservative majority is taking away rights, limiting them. When Democrats were in the majority, they were giving rights. And right. of course, the conservatives objected to that. But abortion is a key example. And that also happened the last day of the term. Just think about it. They mm-hmm. wait for these decisions the last day of the term, then they all go off on vacation. There, there was a story about one justice that used to have the limousine waiting outside yeah. the court. And once <laughs> the opinions were read, he'd get and go off on vacation. Yeah. And they try to sort of insulate themselves from the backlash. Well, and on the last day I, of Pride I, I, Month, too. Uh, oh, right, i forgot. forgotten that. Yeah,
4: June, I also really quickly want to get your take on the uh, sort of conflict that we're hearing amongst the justices in the dissents. It feels to me like we're hearing more infighting now than we've ever
9: heard before. Does that feel right to you? Yes, I mean, it, it's not right, but it, it is true. Or that's a correct so, description, so, rather. Yeah. yeah, because and you know when the justices read a dissent from the bench that's sort of a move showing that they are really really upset about what's happening and for the last two days justice sonia sotomayor who leads the liberal wing of the court has read dissents from the bench and an interesting thing is in her dissents usually they say i dissent respectfully something like that she's just saying i dissent in her dissents and i think that and they're the the dissents are really biting and you see that in some of them, for example, uh, in the uh, affirmative action, justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, the first black woman on the court was sort of having a debate, a nasty debate with justice Clarence Thomas, who's made it his life's mission to get rid of affirmative action. So yeah, you're seeing a lot of fissures.
1: All right, Amazing stuff. Amazing reporting. Thanks guys for uh, joining us here. June Grasso, legal analyst, uh, and Janet Lauren, uh, higher education finance reporter as well as ryan teague beckwith down in dc with the political angle
6: you're listening to the tape catch our live program bloomberg markets weekdays at 10 a.m eastern on bloomberg radio the tune in app bloomberg.com and the bloomberg business app you can also listen live on amazon alexa from our flagship new york station just say alexa play bloomberg 11 30
1: Uh, Anna Wong, talk about a smart voice helping us out. Uh, Chief U.S. Economist with Bloomberg Economics joins us here. Um, So let's step back, Anna. What's your takeaway from the eco data we saw this week and last week, what we heard from the central bankers here? You plug that all into your model, which I know you've got a model. What does that do?
12: Well, you know, I think the tension between what markets believe and the Fed uh, Chair Powell wants the market to believe, there's still just this, you Powell wants us to believe that there's two more twenty-five bps hikes coming. Market is pricing in only one more hike. And you know, um, Paul, the student debt forgiveness today is yep. interesting because it does shave off some um a couple of tenths of percentage point off inflation. And the really? student debt, yes, and it uh, so we estimated last year that the student debt forgiveness would have added 0.2 percentage points of CPI for each year. So, you know, looking at inflation for the rest of the year, because that really is what will what will determine where Fed funds rate would go. Um, we think that the resumption of student loan um, the, the payment this August, and on top of that, this uh, student debt forgiveness program being invalid now, uh, that it would um, le- uh, subtract about 20 bips from core inflation, and also the student debt forgiveness primarily affect people on the 40 to 80 income percentile. And, you know, we wrote earlier this week that the bottom 40 percent of households have already exhausted their excess savings. So, So those folks are seeing their credit card debt run up. And now the 40 to 80 percentile by income, those folks are also having to see their finances further stretched with student loan you know, resumption payments. So I think that a broader stretch of this economy are experiencing headwinds in the rest of the year. This is why we still think a recession is gonna happen in the second half of this year. And I think that Powell will have a hard time convincing markets that there's two more hikes coming.
4: Okay, but doesn't the resumption of student loan repayments, Anna, uh, isn't that going to be a bit deflationary because the consumer is going to be struggling a bit more and therefore perhaps that does the job of the Fed a little bit more for them? Yes, that's exactly what I meant. So
12: with the forgiveness program uh, invalidated, that it should subtract about 20 bps per per year from, from inflation.
4: But we're still seeing that it may not be enough to do the job for the Fed. Enough for us to have this perfect soft landing scenario. Is that what you're saying?
12: Well, I think a recession is going to
4: happen because there's there would be 500 there's
12: 500 bips of rate hike in the pipeline, and there's another 25 bips likely coming in July. So in the second half of this year, you're going to have 525 bips rate hike in the pipeline. So that should be sufficient to push the economy into a recession.
1: Anna, with all your education, all your experience, can you explain what Bidenomics is to me?
12: Uh, Bidenomics is about overheating the economy. And uh, while there are short-term gains, and there are a lot, and, and, you know, it's really up to Congress to debate whether it's worth it. Because, you know, for many households, it's totally worth it. Unemployment rate for minority are at historical lows and many people you know it affects many people but at the same time there are long term costs of higher inflation the fed having to do more more potentially putting uh, pushing the economy into a recession which could have long term effects as well on many households so ultimately it depends on the it's up to the politicians engaging whether this is the right thing to do
4: Anna, you have an amazing story on Bidenomics on the terminal that I read earlier this week and could not stop thinking about all week about the three major tentpole pieces of legislation he's been able to get through so far as president. Can you talk to me about, remind our audience those three big pieces of legislation and just how much money those pieces of legislation are throwing into our economy?
12: Right. So, so aside from the American Rescue Act, right, um, there's an, on, on top of that the infrastructure bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is bipartisan. And that bill is about to uh, generate $550 billion on additional spending on highway and American infrastructure in the next five to 10 years. And the second one is the Chips and Science Act, which is also going to add, uh, you know, additional of about $200 billion or so in Spending and tax subsidies in uh, rejuvenating American manufacturers in in, in uh, chips, and then finally there's the Inflation Reduction Act, which um, really adds about 400 to 500 billion of spending over the next couple uh, five to ten years, but also finance it with higher taxes on corporates and high income individuals. So altogether, whether the effect of uh, the, these numbers look very large they are going to be spread spending is going to be spread across a long period so um, uh, you know the economic impact of it on a per year basis the gain is is small but over time it's the you know especially with infrastructure act productivity is going to rise you know when people have better highways they get to work faster they don't you know, get stuck on in, in traffic it's, it's better for a productivity but I think the ultimate cost is how much does it further overheat the economy at a time where, where capacity of the economy is running up to the limit already and you're adding extra pressure on it? Like, for example, the Chips and Science Act has um, stimulated a lot of construction spending. The, the money chart on this is that, you know, construction, manufacturing... Spending that skyrocketed this year from 90 billion last year to 190 billion this year, and and that will generate, by our estimation, about 400k additional uh, jobs in construction, and it is adding to the pressure in labor market at a time where it, the labor market needs to cool off. So I think. I I think the overall, the impact uh, of of these, while it has noble intentions, whether they're unintended short-term consequences is another matter.
1: So uh, Anna, just about 30 seconds or so, what's the greatest risk in your mind, a persistent inflation or a recession?
12: persistent inflation because that and worse of all, actually both persistent inflation and recession then you have stagflation (laughs) there you
1: go all right that i mean that would be bad that would call (laughs) i don't think you guys call that stagflation i don't know anna wong she's a chief u.s economist for bloomberg economics uh she's been uh, great for us she was really the first one on the street to really talk about higher rates for longer uh and boy was she right on that so here we've got the fed still thinking about you know one maybe two more you know fed rate increases yeah uh that was not what the market was thinking about you know six nine months ago and anna and her team were way out front and saying hey kids you got to really think about that this fed uh, is going to keep rates higher for longer
6: you're listening to the tape catch our live program bloomberg markets weekdays at 10 a.m eastern on bloomberg radio app bloomberg.com and the bloomberg business app you can also listen live on amazon alexa from our flagship new york station just say alexa play bloomberg 1130
1: madison mills of paul sweeney here in our bloomberg interactive broker studio one of the stock stories of the day clearly is our good friends in cupertino california apple stocks up 1.56 percent today uh, that gives it a market capitalization of just over three trillion dollars All-time high for the stock, up 48% year-to-date. All is good in the world of Apple. Let's break it down a little bit and see what this means across uh, the board. And we're going to do that with Anurag Rana. He's a senior tech analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. And Mark Gurman, a chief correspondent on uh, Apple and tech with Bloomberg News. They both join us via Zoom. Mark, let's start with you. We've been talking about the stock. I'm a stock analyst. That's kind of how I think about it, investors and stuff like that. Talk to us about the people in Cupertino, the employees at Apple. What does the stock mean to them? I would think like most other big tech companies they're they get a lot of stock in their compensation. What's the feeling when you go into their new futuristic headquarters in Cupertino?
10: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Good to be here to talk about this milestone for Apple. You know, there's been a wave of departures from Apple over the last year or two. There is the post COVID uh, quitting. That you saw happen people trying to reevaluate their careers people wanting to go elsewhere to potentially make more money and as you said a big portion of apple stock packages or pay packages are stock right you can have stock anywhere between 20 and 60 percent even up to 75 percent in some cases right and so stock is a key reason some people have left they felt that the stock uh, growth has stopped or slowed they feel like there's more upside in other companies but since 2022 the beginning of 2022 the last time we were in three trillion dollar market cap territory uh it has climbed pretty steadily back up to where we are today just over three trillion dollars as of now and I think that's going to show uh, employees that maybe it is best to stick around. Maybe if you were thinking about quitting in October uh, when stocks uh, best and the RSUs best, the restricted units best, uh, maybe you don't do that. Maybe you hold off for a few more years. Maybe you stick it out. Maybe you ask for more shares, right? Because clearly this Apple stock is a worthwhile investment, one that has become rock solid uh, and even more solidified over time. Uh, so I think this is a positive thing for Apple and its employees. But also, you know, employee retention is one of the key issues right now at Apple and, and other technology companies. And this helps solve that, at least for the time being.
4: Well, Anurag, come on in here, because Citi is saying that Apple has another 30 percent upside uh, with already 48 <laughs> percent gains in the first half of 2023 here. Do you think that the sky is the limit for Apple? When are we going to see the the peak here?
5: You know, I haven't seen the city report, but are they saying over the next 12 months or the next 10 years? Because, you know, <laughs> one could make the argument that, yeah, the stock should go up over a long period of time. But, you know, I can't make that judgment call over a 12-month period, frankly.
1: All right. So, Anurag, just give us a sense of what is, even after a 48% increase this year, what's the bull case from here?
5: So you can look at two ways. One is, are people, you know, looking at Apple as a proxy towards the U.S. market? And that's one of the reasons why people are getting into it with, you know, inflation coming down, employment rates are very good, um, interest rates are are relatively low. Or you're looking at the potential for some of the new products. Um, But, you know, in our view, as I've said in the past, I think iPhone really is the big story uh, for Apple. I think it's going to remain that at least for the next five to seven years. Because globally, you know, countries like India, China, Brazil, that has a large amount, large population, and the population is getting richer. You know, they once once they hit a certain point, they are more, um, you know, possible they're going to go for an Apple device rather than an Android, and that's really the growth story in our view.
1: Hey, Mark, you know, you think about India that Anurag just mentioned, and I hear India. You know, mentioned from a lot of companies as an area of growth, you know, maybe China's kind of closed itself off or closing itself off. And so we're looking to India. But I think for India, don't you have to have a a lower priced product to get into that market? And that doesn't just seem to be Apple's kind of strength here. What What do you hear within Cupertino about how they might want to, you know, really uh, grow in India?
10: I mean, The iPhone has been a failure in India, right? If you're looking at it uh, in terms of numbers at this point, right, it's been a failure. It has extremely low market share compared uh, to many of the other handsets there. And the signals that Apple has been giving over the past several months is that we want Uh, the consumer to come to us we don't necessarily want to come to the consumer and what that means is they're talking about holding pricing firm right and having consumers come to those prices rather than lowering prices and coming to more consumers and as anurag said apple believes in this growing middle class in india they believe people are generating more revenue and money in, in, in india Uh, and they want them to be able to spend more money on their devices. Apple believes their phones are indispensable. They believe the brand is a premium brand, uh, and they don't want to impact that brand by lowering pricing or releasing uh, cheaper models. I personally think they should. I think they Mm. could and should have already released an iPhone between $200 and $300. Right now the cheapest Mm. iPhone is about $450 with 5G and such. That's the latest iPhone SE. When the next generation comes out, they can easily tack or drop $100 off that and make it an iPhone here towards India. I'm not sure they're going to do that. Instead, they're creating more installment plans, more financing plans, different promotions. to Try to keep that high-end brand, those high-end price points compared to the Huawei and Xiaomi devices you see in India and have consumers come to them. So I don't see that standpoint changing anytime soon, uh, though it should.
4: Well, Apple has an update on uh, its... Tenpole product coming in the next few months mark with a new iphone update talk to me about what we can expect from the iphone 15 and 15 pro lines uh heading into this fall and to what extent does apple have pricing power for those upcoming releases
10: well i would say that this iphone 15 launch happening uh in the first half of september is one of the key drivers to anurag's point about uh, why the, the the stock is going up, right? You typically see this end of June early July period. Uh, analysts and shareholders and investors are anticipating the new iPhone launch. It's happened the same uh, month for the last you know 12 years or so, right? Um, and so they're really excited about that. This is going to be a larger iPhone upgrade cycle because you're going to see bigger enhancements to both the low-end models and the high-end models, which something which is something Apple hasn't done uh, since 2020 with the iPhone 12 and at 5g, you're going to see big camera improvements as well as screen improvements, to the lower end phones and on the higher end phones, you're going to see a new titanium frame. So anytime Apple makes a material change, uh, in terms of the, the material that the phone is made out of, then you get a pretty big deal about that. Consumers are going to say, wow, that's really cool to get a, be able to get a phone in titanium, right? Uh, on the highest end iPhone, the largest model, Apple's looking to raise, uh, ASPs by pushing people to the higher model. By introducing what is known as a periscope camera now the technology of periscope cameras is still nascent uh what this allows you to do is have exceptional uh hardware-based zoom so you can zoom in far uh more into something you want to take a picture of without degrading the quality which is something that happens on iphones and other phones today yeah. so this is going to be a big improvement only available on the biggest and most expensive phones uh that's something that i think is going to drive sales as well i think shareholders Uh, Anticipate higher end phones to raise ASPs and that's what's generating a lot of the excitement on the on the stock lately, too Hey,
1: um Anurag, can you give us a kind of an update on Apple and China? So when I think about Apple and China, I think about app, you know, China as a obviously a big big market for them But I also see that as a big supply chain risk. What's the latest thinking on Apple and China?
5: So from a supply chain point of view, they're doing a lot of work to uh, assemble the phone outside uh, China. And we've seen, you know, new factories, you know, cropping up in India. Uh, I think that is going to be a big feature going forward. I think they will uh, establish assembly factories outside in other regions also. You know, around last Thanksgiving, then um, they had issues with the, the pro model in China because of COVID. And I think that probably taught them a lesson that they need to diversify that pretty strongly. And I think uh, this year, you know, as Mark said, it's going to be a lot of excitement in the in the fourth quarter or or the calendar fourth quarter, because last year we had, uh, you know, COVID related stuff. So very easy comparison for, for them. And uh, from a supply chain point of view, you know, more and more stuff being assembled uh, in India and then perhaps in Brazil later on.
4: And Mark, I want to talk to you about the headset, because the day it was released, the stock price uh, was not as in the green as we're seeing today, obviously. Uh, Is the headset going to be a headwind for Apple moving forward, or is it just something that uh, is going to be in the background, but investors are happy to kind of overlook the potential success of the headset?
10: The, the stock growth drivers from the headset have nothing to do with the headset themselves. It has to do with this idea of ecosystem lock-in, the idea of consumers wanting to buy and use uh, multiple products. The headset itself is not going to add more than $3 billion to Apple's bottom line in the first year. And it's also possible it could be a huge flop, and after re- giving Apple a return on, on its you know seven-year development investment, it could completely go out of style, right? I don't anticipate that happening, but that's to say, I don't think anyone's buying apple stock in any significant amount uh, of money or number of cares because of this headset the first model way overpriced out of normal consumer budgets at thirty five hundred dollars starting it's going to go upwards at four of uh, four thousand depending on the bells and whistles you get uh the people who are buying this thing are going to be the most avid apple fans mixed reality efficient autos, and software developers right the mass consumer basically anyone other than me Probably going to hold off until the third or fourth generation, right? Over time, Apple anticipates this. I'm told becoming a 25 billion or so annual business, right? That's about um, an eighth of what the iPhone brings in, anyways. So I think at this point, uh, not a lot on the stock because of the headset, uh, but it's really the ecosystem lock-in. The idea where you know I'm sitting in front of me with an iPad Pro, a MacBook. Pro, An iPhone Pro, an AirPods Pro, and you know, in six months from now, I could be wearing an Apple Vision Pro to be talking to you. I'm wearing an Apple Watch Ultra, right? That's the magic. Geek. Subscribe to all mm-hmm. their services. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm the shareholder's dream consumer, and uh, I helped him cook sleep at night. Consumers like me, and go. I right. think that's why mm-hmm. that's why people want to buy Apple stock. It's just like investing in uh, Coca-Cola.
1: Yep. All right. uh, It's got a lot of higher valuation. But uh, Mark Gurman, thank you so much. We (laughs) appreciate it. Chief correspondent on Apple and technology with Bloomberg News. And, of course, Anurag Rana, senior technology analyst uh, with Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973.